Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody, to the show. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining us in our virtual studio from all over the planet are Doug, Erica, and Gabby. Unfortunately, Tiffany can't be with us today, so we'll miss her. Um, and, of course, Zoya will be uh, with us later during the Pet Health segment, as always. Um, today we're going to start off with a few articles, and our, our general topic is uh, the mood cure, um, or how to, uh, how to address mood imbalances using uh, natural means and supplements, things like that. Um, but our first article here today, we have one on, uh, on SOT. The title is Negative Thoughts, Try Probiotics. And uh, just says that new research finds that our gut bacteria is linked with negative thinking and supplementing probiotics can reduce negative thoughts. Uh, negative thinking is defined as a spiraling of thinking that takes a, person's from, a person from one negative thought to the next. Often this is rightly attributed to getting up on the wrong side of the bed, but now we find it may also be a case of bad bugs. Um, this just lends to our... Uh, our, our knowledge that we have been discussing somewhat on the show already that the, uh, the brain-gut connection, um, the fact that the gut is linked to the brain, uh, that's why they call it the second brain, and that a, uh, uh, many neurotransmitters are actually produced in the gut. So sometimes when people are uh, eating bad diets, they're upsetting the balance of probiotics in their gut or destroying the probiotics entirely. Um, this can really upset the balance of neurotransmitters in your brain and can, can lead to uh, negative thoughts, which might be interpreted as de- uh, depression or anxiety or things like that, um, which they in fact are, but it's, uh, it's actually caused by an imbalance in your gut. And I think I had mentioned this once on the show before, but I <clears throat> had a very similar experience myself where I did kind of an overblown uh, fungal detox with oregano oil, and I did too much of it. And I killed off a lot of the gut bacteria that I had and just felt really down and depressed for like three weeks. Um, hmm. And once I finally kind of realized what was going on, I started supplementing probiotics and the change was just like a snap. Um, started feeling better and started digesting my food much better. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that was really the case there. Um, so just an interesting point from this article uh, is what is cognitive reactivity to sadness? Uh, the notion of cognitive reactivity was developed as part of a cognitive behavior therapy, which serves to investigate the source of a person's depression. Reductions in negative thinking have been associated with decreased depression symptoms. The therapy method has been found has found that negative thinking often helps prevent a depressed person from improving. Negative thinking doesn't necessarily produce depression, however. Research from Leiden University has studied this element of cognitive reactivity to sad moods along with depression. Um, a questionnaire protocol developed at Leiden called the Leiden Index of Depression Sensitivity has been found to determine to what degree a person's negative thinking leads to an increase in depressed thoughts. So you notice that um, if, for instance, your neurotransmitters are out of balance or your probiotics are out of balance, which results in the neurotransmitter imbalance, that um, you feel sad, you feel this imbalance, and then the negative thinking kind of compounds that. It, it, it lays over top of that and creates this spiral um, in which mm-hmm. you just kind of make your, 
your thoughts worse and worse. Um, so the initial cause, though, uh, essentially being a, a physical one, biophysical. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was quite interesting. And uh, um, I think for us here on the show, it's not necessarily a new topic for a lot of people. It may be. It was when I discovered it, it was like, no way, you know, that my gut is actually associated with my brain. Um, mm-hmm. But, it, you know, if you're going through things like this, um, it's definitely worth looking into to see if you might need probiotics. So our uh, our next article, we wanted to go to uh, Erica, who had a few points on um, food addiction and some other things. Erica, do you want to go over that for a little bit? Yeah, sure. So I found two um, articles that kind of relate to our topic today that I wanted to share, and both are from Natural Society. One is a study reveals how much processed food we really buy, and it was just a study that that was between 2000 and 2012 where researchers looked at 157,000 households to use barcode scanners to record food items purchased. And according to the multi-year analysis of grocery stores in the USA, highly processed foods were found to make up 60% of the calories in foods that are purchased. And so, you know, for our listeners and our chatters, you know, highly processed foods are soda, cookies, chips, whole what are white bread, candy. And um, I found the interest uh, the article interesting because there's many facets to this issue. Um, one of them he mentions is uh, oh, and Mike Barrett is the author. I didn't mention that, but uh, um, these foods are made up of low quality ingredients and often come from GMOs. Um, mainly corn, and they're cheap because they they have a long last lasting shelf life, um, and that's a result of numerous preservative like ingredients that are harmful. He goes on to say further that processed foods have been shown to be highly addictive in multiple studies. One study has found that what many studies already concluded that junk food plaguing grocery store shelves alters parts of your brain responsible for the levels of hunger, thirst, and the body's natural rhythm and cycles. In other words, processed foods and junk foods are addictive. Mm -hmm. And kind of on that same line, uh, another article I wanted to share, and uh, we may have talked about this in previous shows, is officials label healthy eating as the newest eating disorder. And uh, this was published on April 12th. And the author says, do you consider eating healthy, clean diet a priority in your life? According to psychiatric officials who want to add healthy eating to the extensive list of mental disorders, you have an eating disorder called orthorexia nervosa, to be specific. So... um, Basically, if you don't eat things like Monsanto's cancer-laden chemicals, artificial additives, and high-fructose corn syrup, you must be crazy. The Daily Mail report breaks down the latest declaration from psychiatric officials who are heavily pushing the orthorexia nervous eating disorder, and I'm just going to make a quote from that article. Some clinicians argue orthorexia nervosa should be recognized as a separate eating disorder and have proposed classical or clinical DSM diagnostic criteria. They note distinct pathological behaviors with orthorexia 
nervosa, including a motivation for feelings of perfection or purity rather than weight loss, as they see with anorexia and bulimia. So why healthy eating may be the new eating disorder. Raw food and paleo dieters are at risk of a dangerous obsession with nutrition. <laughs> so he, he says, did you catch that part? Those who eat raw food or paleo diets are at a risk of a dangerous obsession with nutrition. In other words, if you actually refuse to eat the standard American diet, um, due to the realization that you're eating your way to the grave, then you're experiencing an eating disorder. And, uh, yeah, so I thought that was kind of interesting, you know. Um, he goes on to the final part of the article to say at least they don't have an eating disorder because they never question corporations that completely run our food supply at, with the cheapest and most toxic food ingredients you can imagine. So if you're if you're eating paleo and you're concerned about your food, you may have orthorexia nervosa, according to this uh, Anthony Gussiardi article on SOT. So you can check it out. It's interesting read. It's there was an article published in February last year um, stating these same kinds of things. So it looks like it's coming back in the media again to be discussed, and it's probably because the paleo diet is really growing in popularity and a lot of people are discussing it and using it to have uh, lifestyle changes. Yeah, it's kind of a tricky situation because I, I think that orthorexia is a real thing. Like I have certainly encountered many people who have an, an unhealthy obsession with this sort of thing. Um, I think that the problem is that they aren't really differentiating there between, you know, not everybody who, who wants to eat healthy obviously has any kind of disorder. So I, it is it is kind of a weird situation where there is this kind of gray area, fine line that you kind of have to to be able to judge. And I I certainly don't uh, trust the uh, people doing these psychiatric evaluations to be able to make those kind of distinctions. You're very wise in that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, if, you know, if somebody uh, who wants to eat healthy has let's say, some form of OCD um, to the point where yeah. they're going to have a panic attack if they can't find, you know, grass-fed beef, then maybe, you know, it depends on the outcome of their reaction to that kind of a situation. But if you're simply concerned with eating healthy and you make it a point um, to find these foods, that shouldn't be a disorder. Yeah. I, I, I also should should say that I've never come across anybody who's a paleo eater who I would consider to be kind of weird and obsessed, but I certainly have come across many raw foodists who are. Exactly. And yeah. vegetarians. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I mean, it might have something to do with the diet too. I mean, you know, we've, we've covered extensively uh, how that those kinds of diets, like the effects that they can have on your brain. So the fact that you would get kind of OCD about these sorts of things because you're missing kind of vital nutrients that your brain needs. I mean, it just kind of makes sense. Yeah. My well, my question it. is, what what kind of uh, prescription drug are they going to offer for these people that yeah. are <laughs> yeah. suffering from this? <laughs> yeah. Comment. <laughs> I guess, I mean, in, I'd, be, I'd be really curious to see how psychiatrists feel about this because in, in my mind, that it really discredits the DSM, which in certain cases can actually be a valuable diagnostic tool.
tool, I don't think it's worth throwing out entirely. Um, mm. But this is, is quite damaging to any kind of integrity that they had, personally. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's, I think so, there's a lot uh, of things in the DSM are questioning its, uh, its validity at the moment. Yeah. Yep. Um, well, that, that leads us into our next uh, article here. Gabby, you had a, a couple that you were going to cover about uh, depression and, and leaky gut and some connections there. Yeah, I have a couple of articles and in research to this discussion of psychiatry, medicine, and so forth. The first article is titled, Depression, Why Not Start with a Nutritional Solution? And it is written by the author of Wheat Belly book, you know, he reminds us how little diet is discussed in this field, in psychiatry, but also in psychology. Yet, a bad diet amplifies dark moods and, you know, it allows demons to emerge, literally, figuratively speaking, you know. Even though a good diet won't erase past, uh, past trauma or grief, it can still help us adapt to life events more naturally. And he lists um, several things that in his experience have worked most and um, to lift, uh, you know, the mood. And the first one is eliminating wheat and grain. Uh, these have mild-turing properties, which derive from gluten and gluten-like proteins. They're the equivalent of opiates, which can produce paranoia, psychotic symptoms. It can produce mania. It can produce impulsivity and depression. So that's the first order of things, remove wheat and grain. Second, in his experience, um, restoring vitamin D levels works very well. And to achieve optimal D levels, vitamin D levels, typically 4,000 or 8,000 units per day are needed. So most people, you know, are familiarized with 200 units, 1,000, but no, actually like around 5,000 units per day is more like it. Then the third thing on his list uh, is fish oil. And she specifically says that you should not take less than 3,000 milligrams total per day. You can divide it in, dose, in doses, but, you know, fish oil in good quantity, it helps with the mood. Then what you mentioned earlier, Jonathan, cultivation of, of bowel flora. Either good probiotics, or fermented foods. We spoke in previous shows about Lactobacillus rhamnosus GG. That's a good one, you know, uh, to choose as a probiotic. Then as supplements, he also mentions tryptophan, which enhances our body's production of serotonin. And, it's, and this is for a very good mood. But it also is a precursor for melatonin as well. And this enhances good sleep, which helps you with, with a good mood. And what this doctor gives is 500 milligrams before going to bed. And if that doesn't work, he suggests 500 milligrams increments every two days, that is 1,000, then 1,500, and so forth, all at bedtime. You know, that's his, his preference. So it will enhance melatonin production. And then, you know, um, a couple of more things, uh, exercise which is not very easy to do, especially when you're depressed. So he suggests, you know, starting little, like just go for a walk, do some gardening, play with kids, and you build up from there. And laughing, you know, which is contagion. 
And so this is from the author of We Belly, Dr. William Davies. This is his favorite thing to do for as a nutritional solution for depression, you know. And then for the second article, uh, this is one of my favorite articles. It was published in the SOT.net database in 2013. It is called, Why Isn't My Brain Working? You know, and it's in a quote from a book, which is called Brain Health Book. And the author is, uh, well, that's a difficult name to pronounce, Dr. Karazian. I'll post that on the chat. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it, it basically, this article emphasizes how the, how our gut's health is uh, so important because it profoundly influences the health of our brain, where we, where we were just discussing in earlier shows and at the beginning of this one. Studies link gut problems with depression, mood disorders, but also Parkinson's disease, memory loss, even schizophrenia. And um, the article highlights how leaky gut produces inflammation not only throughout the entire body, but also the brain, uh, because it allows toxins, parasites, bacteria, fungi, and other foreign material to enter into the bloodstream. Um, brain inflammation produces depression and other mood disorders. In fact, anyone who has brain fog or persistent depression or any autoimmune or inflammatory condition, even in the absence of digestive symptoms, should consider having leaky gut. So if you go to this article, um, you'll find it has a very simple list of foods to avoid and foods to eat in order to help heal this condition. Like most vegetables are allowed except for the nightshade family, which is potatoes, peppers, you know, um, tomatoes. Fermented foods are encouraged such as sauerkraut, pickled ginger, fermented cucumbers, and so forth. And fatty meats are encouraged as well. So it's a very good startup start point for those who are making, uh, who are doing dietary changes for the first time or in a long time. And I'll post the link to the article in the chat, Why Isn't My Brain Working? So these are the articles I wanted to cover. Great. Thanks, Gabby. Well, um as I said, our, our topic today is uh, <clears throat> mood and the mood cure and how these imbalances can affect your mood. And I think that uh, everybody knows and has experience with um, those kind of days, you know, where, you know, even if you didn't uh, do anything, you know, particularly bad, like let's say you drank the day before or you ate some nasty food or something like that, even without those kind of cases, um Everybody has days where they wake up in the world that's just dark, you know, and it's just you feel down. Sometimes you just can't shake it. Um, <clears throat> sometimes even a kind word is not really received, and you're just like, ah, grumble, grumble, you know. And uh, it's been a revelation for me over the last uh, couple of years that um, that a lot of this is due to these physical imbalances uh, in our body. And it's unfortunate how often... Uh, these days, this is addressed with pharmaceuticals, um, which, you know, further uh, throws these things out of balance um, and causes people to kind of spiral downwards into this negative thinking 
uh, it might make you feel better for a day or two or even a little longer than that. Uh, but the problem is you have to keep up this regimen of using these drugs um, and, you know, it just gets worse and worse over time. And uh, I know that we have a, a few listeners who have, you know, personal intimate experience with this. Um, I personally don't have any experience with pharmaceutical antidepressants, but I also know uh, people that have. And uh, it's quite a thing. It's it's really, really damaging uh, to your mental state, to your physical state, and it's really hard to get off of. Um, so we wanted to talk today about some of the things that affect the mood. Uh, what are the causes of these, aside from just negative, uh, you know, circumstances in your life, um, there are things that you can do uh, in your diet, uh, in your regimen of supplements, um, things like that, in order to alleviate uh, some of these issues so that you can be a, a little more at ease, um, a little more able to deal with kind of the twists and turns that get thrown at us in life. Um, so <clears throat> to start off, uh, Gabby is going to tell us a little bit about the four main syndromes uh, that affect the mood uh, and that affect your, your mental state. Gabby, do you want to go over that a little bit? Yes, these four main syndromes are based on Dr. Julia Ross' experiences. And she wrote the book, The Mood Cure, and it synthesizes like over 15 years of clinical experience in her clinic, um, dealing with people with addiction, but with other problems as well. As well. And um, and this division makes a lot of sense because it, it is divided in several pathways. So I'll list them briefly and then I'll give a very general overview of each one. Um, so, okay, the first division, the first group is uh, people who have serotonin problems. The second group is those who have thyroid problems, but also depletion of catecholamine such as uh, epinephrine and norepinephrine. The third group has to do with adrenal fatigue, um, adrenal problems in general. And the fourth group has to do with lack of endogenous endorphins, that is um, the endorphins that our bodies are able to produce naturally. So in reference with the first problem, which is serotonin, um, well, serotonin is a brain chemical which uh, regulates Sleep, it raises our pain threshold and it elevates our mood. It's our happy, you know, our happy chemical. There are more receptors uh, for serotonin in our digestive tract than in our brain. And so if we have uh, low levels of serotonin or dysfunctional levels of serotonin, it can interfere with proper intestinal function. The chemicals involved in these pathway in serotonin problems are tryptophan, uh, which is I mean, it is an amino acid, and it is a precursor for serotonin, and serotonin is a precursor for melatonin, which is our sleepy hormone. This is where antidepressants usually try to um, try, they try to work. They try to artificially boost serotonin levels in the body. Sometimes and very often they can make things worse because there might not be enough serotonin to begin with because uh, serotonin gets depleted with when we eat too many carbs or where we're dealing with too much stress and then you know artificially um, interfering with these pathways always a very bad idea and um, 
because of the chemicals involved, people who have uh, problems, uh, serotonin problems, they may be people who have fibromyalgia and IBS, which is irrit irritable bowel syndrome. They can be night owls because they lack melatonin, so they find it very hard to fall asleep. They can be very anxious people with low self-esteem. They can have a tendency to be very negative and obsessive. And they also crave sweet, uh, sweet foods or starchy foods. So this is for serotonin problems. As for the second group of problems, which is thyroid problems or catecholamines, such as dopamine, adrenaline, and noradrenaline. So these are people um, who use alcohol, chocolate, caffeine, smooth enhancers because of the chemicals involved, which are usually the amino acid tyrosine, which is a precursor for dopamine, which by itself is a precursor for uh, adrenaline and noradrenaline. And because these chemicals are deficient, it is, um, we find people that feel very apathetic. They have like very low physical energy, but also low mental energy. They lack motivation. They find it very difficult to concentrate or focus. They need lots of sleep, and they gain weight very easily. They get very cold very easily as well, you know, cold hands and feet. And uh, they do tend to have a, some sort of addiction. It doesn't matter which one, because addictions, it sticks to, to, to stimulate um, dopamine. And they end up, you know, wearing out those dopamine levels. And, you know, there are several examples, but what I can think of on top of my mind is like addiction to cocaine, addiction to porn, addiction to marijuana, video games, any addiction basically tries, tries to seek to, to raise dopamine levels. Uh, so this is for the dopamine and thyroid problems group. As for the third group, which is adrenal fatigue, yes, uh, we have to remember the, uh, that the adrenal glands, they produce cortisol, they produce reproductive hormones, they produce DHEA, which is our rejuvenating hormone, they also produce uh, fight or flight response hormones, and even salt regulation hormones. So these are people who are extremely overstressed, they are deadlined, they're overworked people. They tend to be very tense. They have, you know, tense muscles. They feel overwhelmed, shaky. They could be sensitive to light, noise, or even chemical fumes. And um, they feel worse if they go too long without eating. Yet they often wake up without hunger and they skip breakfast, often having only a coffee. And this is to squeeze the juice out, you know, the last juice of hormones out of their adrenal glands. They can also have lots of food sensitivity, but lots of them. They can have hair loss. And women can have more body hair than usual. And these are people who tend to fall sick very often with any infection, you know. Um, and they also usually went uh, through a very big shock recently, such as major surgery job loss, divorce, any stress, you name it. So this is as for the third group, which is adrenal fatigue. And the last group is the 
our natural endorphins, you know, our natural morphine, so to speak. And uh, these are people who are highly sensitive people. You know, there is even a book written with that title. Um, emotional, physical pain really gets them. They cry very easily. They try to avoid dealing with painful issues because they don't have their own inner morphine, so to speak. Yes, they have more pain. And then um, they find it very hard to get over losses or grief. And they crave, you know, pleasure or they crave mind-numbing food, like even especially those ones who have morphine on them, such as bread, dairy foods, but also drugs, such as marijuana, you know. They also crave, like, mind-numbing activities, such as reading novels or watching movies to associate. So this is an overview of the four main groups and their problems and, you know, the main symptoms. Hope it was clear. <laughs> yeah, very. Yeah, thank you, Gary. So it kind of gives us a, a broad overview of the the different types of uh, syndromes and the different systems in the body that <clears throat> that affect the mood and kind of how these are categorized. Um, next, uh, Doug, do you want to go over the, the diet aspect of this? We're going to talk a little bit about how the diet can affect the mood and especially how um, proteins are involved. Yeah, sure. Yeah. This kind of goes uh, a little more in depth on the, um, you know, why, you know, if you're feeling depressed or any other kind of mood disorder, you know, why not try diet? Um, diet is probably is one of the most important aspects for getting a handle on any kind of mood disorder. Um, and, you know, this obviously would also include things like sleep, exercise, uh, EMF exposure, uh, doing things like uh, meditation, that sort of thing. Um, but uh, diet is one of the main pillars. Um, and, you know, as everybody probably listening knows, we're pretty strong uh, proponents of the ketogenic diet. Um, here at SOT, uh, you know, getting oneself into fat burning mode rather than into, uh, rather than being in sugar burning mode. Um, you know, you do that by significantly reducing carbohydrates and increasing the amount of fat, making it kind of your main energy source. Um, one of the things that a diet, um, that's high in fat, uh, emphasizes, um, are, you know, the, the important components that you kind of need in order to have a stabilized mood. So that includes things like essential fats, um, protective saturated fats, um, all the fat-soluble vitamins, uh, ample mineral consumption, um, as well as complete po uh, protein sources um, that, is, that emphasize all um, the essential and non-essential amino acids. So just to go over that quickly, proteins are chains that are um, made of strung together amino acids, what are called amino acids. So uh, there's uh, 20 different amino acids, um, and nine of those are essential. Actually, eight are essential, and one is conditionally essential. Um, but simply adjusting your diet in this way can actually ensure that um, you're getting all of these necessary components for the optimal function of the human body, and that includes all things for uh, maintaining a stable mood. Um, by contrast, like a carb-rich diet, uh, things that contain uh, grains, legumes, emphasizes vegetable oils and trans fats, uh, that loads the diet with harmful substances um, and anti-nutrients, which can cause deficiencies. So, uh, you know, while we all know that like a processed fast food diet is really nothing more than a, a short, uh, or sorry, a long uh, means of uh, slow suicide, um, 
it even includes what's uh, considered like a healthy diet by common standards, which generally is, you know, try and get as close to vegetarianism as you can. Um, <clears throat> so just to go into a little bit more detail here. So when someone's in carb metabolism or sugar metabolism, because all carbohydrate eventually ends up as sugar in the body, um, this, uh, yeah, even a diet uh, that contains fats, um, even good animal fats, if you're still eating uh, excessive carbohydrates, you're forcing the body to remain in its sugar burning mode due to the effects of uh, insulin. And we've gone over this quite a bit in the past. But uh, just by eating um, a lot of carbohydrates, you are maintaining that sugar burning mode. So you're, you're not benefiting from, uh, from these fats as you could be. Um, having carbs in the diet uh, results in uh, the glycation of proteins. And this is kind of like where um, these proteins almost end up caramelized. They get like a sugar coating on them and uh, can't function properly. So that includes like important uh, enzymes, uh, neurotransmitters, and receptor sites that uh, may, uh, essentially make them inefficient or uh, ineffective altogether. Um, so carb metabolism is uh, not only um, damaging because of the, this glycation, but it's also not as efficient as fat metabolism. So uh, by eating all these carbs, you may actually be lacking energy you need for proper mood stabilization. So getting into protein. Um, so the fact that, um, you know, the media, it basically uh, promotes um, as close to vegetarianism as possible in order to be healthy. And that includes things like veganism, which is kind of considered the pinnacle, um, but also the other end of the spectrum, which is uh, flexitarianism, what they call it, which basically means that you eat vegetarian most of the time, but you have uh, non-vegetarian meals sometimes. Um, but it, uh, by necessity, uh, relies on non-animal-based protein sources. Um, so that, that basically means you're relying on uh, incomplete protein sources. So uh, just to go over quickly, um, you know, proteins, uh, the, the amino acids and proteins, as I mentioned, there's the eight essential ones. Um, if something is an incomplete protein, it means it doesn't have uh, enough of all these essential amino acids. So a complete protein is something that has all eight, um, has all the amino acids that you actually, actually need. Um, so no vegetarian source actually contains all the essential amino acids. Um, more aware vegetarians try to circumvent this fact by uh, what they call protein combining, which basically uses multiple plant protein sources to try and buffer the missing amino acids in any one source. So they might, you know, take, um, have grains but include legumes with them or include nuts with them. So what's deficient in the grains um, will hopefully be made up for in the legumes or the nuts. Um, you know, the, the, the basic belief behind this is that as long as you're getting all these amino acids in some form, um, it's equivalent to getting a, a complete uh, protein from an animal source. Um, the main problem with this is that all vegetarian protein sources are still primarily starch-based foods. They might have, you know, relatively high protein levels in them, but they still have more starch than anything else. So it's therefore difficult to get enough of the amino acids because you're basically taking in a lot of starch with all of them. So you're going to be getting more and more and more calories from the, um, the starch source in them. Um, and to be able to get enough of the amino acids that you need, you actually have to eat quite a bit. Um, there's also the question of bioavailability. Uh, how much of the protein is actually available and not bound up by plant fibers um, that we're able to digest? You know, we're not herbivores. 
so we don't have these long digestive tracts that are, um, allow the fermentation of fiber to release all these uh, needed nutrients. Um, we rely on our acidic stomachs. Um, and the, the acid in the stomach is able to kind of break down readily available protein. Um, so, you know, by not taking advantage of that, we're doing ourselves a real disservice. Um, you know, our, our stomachs are basically made for animal proteins, you know, protein that is in a dense, concentrated source. Um, it's a complete protein. Everything that you need is right there. So the stomach is able to kind of take that apart very easily, whereas pro- plant proteins, it has a lot more difficulty with. Um, so these amino acids form the structural components, the enzymes, and importantly, they also um, provide everything that's needed for the neurotransmitters for proper brain function and nervous system function. So this includes amino acids like glutamate, aspartate, uh, tryptophan, phenylalanine, and, and many more as well. Um, also things that you'll get from the diet, um, cholesterol. Uh, so, you know, a vegetarian diet is uh, severely lacking in cholesterol. Um, and, you know, while cholesterol is completely demonized by the media, it's important to remember that uh, it's the precursor to all our steroid hormones, uh, including all the sex hormones. Um, so cholesterol deficiency can actually uh, manifest in a low mood, uh, depression, uh, sexual dysfunction, uh, that, among many other things as well. Um, and while most of the cholesterol that we eat is not actually absorbed, um, a high-fat, low-carb diet supports proper, uh, proper cholesterol synthesis. Um, and it minimizes the damage that uh, can happen to cholesterol that a- ends up causing all the harm. Um, another thing that uh, a high-fat diet uh, tends to emphasize is uh, magnesium. Um, magnesium uh, tends to be lost with the consumption of a high-sugar, high-starch diet. Um, this can lead to insomnia, headache, apathy, irritability, confusion, inattention, anxiety, memory loss, even hallucinations. Uh, depression, bipolar disorder, suicidal thoughts, uh, early onset Alzheimer's, ADHD, IQ loss, uh, and I've got an even a longer list here, but I think you get the idea. Uh, magnesium deficiency is pretty much epidemic um, in our society, and a lot of that is probably because of the diet. Um, and it's not just because we're not getting enough magnesium, although that is an issue as well, um, but it is because uh, a high starch, high sugar diet, actually, you tend to excrete a lot more magnesium and you don't even use what you have actually eaten. Um, magnesium is also protective against uh, heavy metals like aluminum, nickel, lead, beryllium, cadmium, and mercury. And all of those things, of course, can lead to uh, mood disorders if you have a, a toxicity there. So um, magnesium supplementation is something I encourage everybody to do. Um, I think that in this day and age, we all need to be uh, supplementing magnesium, uh, regardless of your diet. Um, There's also concerns with other minerals as well. Like when you consume a plant-based diet, you're exposing yourself to a lot of anti-nutrients, and those can actually bind to minerals in the body, making them unusable. Um, A lot of trace elements are needed for thousands of different biochemical reactions, um, including the structure of neurotransmitters and hormones. Um, so deficiencies in trace elements can uh, certainly manifest as mood disorders. Um, and just by eating things like grains, uh, you know, eating the diet that is widely considered to be healthy, you know, getting your five servings of whole grains a day, you're actually um, uh, risking uh, trace element deficiencies there. Um, another thing that, uh, that uh, high-fat diet emphasizes is omega-3 fats. Um, studies have shown that kids low in uh, omega-3 fats are significantly more likely to be hyperactive, 
uh, have learning disorders and have behavioral problems. Uh, deficiencies in omega-3s are also tied to dyslexia, violence, depression, uh, memory problems, uh, and that's just to name the mood disorders. I mean, there's also autoimmune concerns, cancer, uh, arthritis, other inflammatory diseases. Um, so omega-3 deficiencies are quite widespread. Uh, they're thought to be about at least 60% in the USA. Um, a properly formulated ketogenic diet, on the other hand, uh, is, one that uh, is one that emphasizes omega-3s, particularly if it leans in the paleo direction, um, emphasizing pasture-raised meats and eggs, um, fish, seafood. Uh, those things are all very high in omega-3 fats. Uh, the, you need um, you, the important thing to, to note here, I know, because a lot of times people will promote things like flax oil or chia oil or nuts or seeds or something like that as a source of omega-3s. Uh, these are not the long-chain omega-3s that we really need. Um, the longer-chain uh, omega-3s are EPA and DHA. Um, you get them from uh, fish, seafood, and pastured animal products. You don't get them from seeds. Uh, so although flax oil does give you a shorter-chain omega-3, um, there's a lot of studies out there that show that our conversion of this shorter chain to the longer chain is not nearly as efficient as we would need it to be. Um, a lot of that has to do with genetics. Uh, there's a lot of theories out there that say that people who uh, kind of descend from more agrarian cultures are a little bit more able to make that conversion. But just as a, um, as a safety precaution, I would recommend people, um, you know, supplement for, uh, with fish oil as well as getting their um, their meats uh, and fish or, or their meats from uh, from pasture raised animals because uh, the feedlot stuff um, the factory farm stuff just does not have the omega-3s in it so um, I mean this is a real re this is one of the reasons that you uh, um, you know see so much of this deficiency happening An interesting thing as well um, if a mother is low in omega-3s um, when she's pregnant uh, all those omega-3s are going to go to the baby because it needs them. Like the fetus needs these omega-3s in order to develop properly. So um, a lot of times when you see this post postpartum depression happening, there's a theory that that actually is because the mother is so depleted of omega-3s by the time she actually has the kid that, that she just gets completely depressed. Um, and, you know, this, this uh, omega-3 deficiency gets passed on to the kid, too. I mean, if the, the omega-3s just aren't there, there's, there's nothing they can do. So it's, it's no real wonder that we're seeing these epidemics in, like, ADD, ADHD, um, hyperactivity, uh, you know, behavioral problems. Um, a lot of that can probably be attributed to this omega-3 deficiency that's been, you know, passed on to these kids since birth. So, yeah, bottom line, you know, if you're suffering from any kind of mood disorder, uh, a thinking or attention deficit disorder, um, you know, what does your diet look like? Are you getting enough fats? Are you getting enough cholesterol? Are you getting the right kind of fats? Um, are you getting a concentrated, complete protein source from animal sources? Uh, is your digestion sufficient to be breaking down and assimilating all these important nutrients? So these are the questions that you need to be asking yourself. Fascinating. Well, thanks, Doug, for that overview. We are uh... I mean, it's something, like you said, that we've been talking about for a while on the show, but, uh, I mean, it's very clear uh, from a scientific and a biophysical point of view that the diet affects the brain, you know, and it's, the, the connection is proven. Um, I think it's pretty much unassailable. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of people still aren't aware of this, um, so I think partly because, you know, when you eat, um, like, these high-carb diets um, and a lot of things that have the the chemicals that are involved in processing, 
in them, you actually get a sort of high uh, for a little while. So you actually feel better. Yeah. Uh, and then you continue to eat that thing. And it's just like with any drug habit, you know, you go back to it to feel better. And you're like, well, I feel fine because I just had a sandwich. Yeah. So, yeah. Self-medicating. Yeah. Well, that, uh, speaking of, of that and of, uh, you know, eating disorders, um, Erica is going to cover some material here for a little bit from uh, Julia Ross, who is the author of the book, The Mood Cure. Um, and Julia Ross is a uh, nutritional therapist, and she has also worked as a counselor and a psychotherapist uh, in Northern California. Um, and uh, Erica is just going to cover some of her material uh, for us for a little while. Yeah. So um, Julia Ross, has a few videos on YouTube that I'd like to share for people who may not have the time or the access to the book, The Mood Cure. One of them is called Mood and Carb Addiction. And she talks about food addiction. And uh, basically, as Jonathan just said, she has a background in addiction and eating disorder and uh, psychotherapy treatment. So combining nutritional plans with psychotherapy so people can have a stable recovery, at least work through these issues. But I wanted to address the food addiction thing briefly because I found her video fascinating. She basically says that addicts are at the mercy of a biological imperative, and it's why they can't say no. And um, for those listening, you know, this uh, food addiction is a real serious issue. And... Um, We've carried several articles on the SOT page about it. You can look some of them up. One is food addiction and drug addiction. Brain activity shows similarities, studies, finds, and that was published back in 2011. And also addiction to junk food more than meets the eye. That was uh, back in 2013 on Green Med Info. But for those who are listening, you know, this food addiction issue is kind of a hot topic, especially when you share your um, diet, you know, the ketogenic diet with people. The first thing they say is, oh, how can you not eat, you know, that pizza or that cookie? And there really is this brain component. And just to give a little bit of background, I wanted to share um, some information on this addiction and how there are actually organizations that help food addicts. So this article, it's called Food Wars, the Battle for the Hearts and Minds of Food Addicts, was published um, in uh, March of this month about the different types of programs that are out there for food addicts. And The Fix is an addiction website where you can read about all the different kind of programs that are going on and discussing topics around addiction. But this article was really helpful for me in helping understand that food addiction is real. And just to give you an an overview, um, there are several 12-step programs for food addicts. And I'm just going to list some of them here. Overeaters Anonymous, Compulsive Eaters Anonymous, Food Addicts in Recovery Anonymous, Food Addicts Anonymous, and Gray Sheeters Anonymous. And there are also some smaller fellowships as well that specialize in 12-step programs for anorexic and bulimics. So it's called Anorexics and Bulimics Anonymous. 
And um, the author has a very interesting discussion about what are the difference between these types of programs. And he says, a quick glance, comparison of the programs for compulsive eater shows only one main difference. All the other, all of all the other programs, other than Overeaters Anonymous, they have some kind of food plan as a requirement for certain things. All the programs are based on 12 steps and 12 traditions, so they only actually require membership um, with the duration of a desire to stop eating compulsively. Other groups began to look at certain foods, mostly refined carbohydrates, as trigger foods for most compulsive eaters. Most of this group had come to believe through empirical evidence of their own behavior that curbing compulsive overeating became much easier when these foods, sugars and carbohydrates, were removed from their diet. Um, back in 1960, uh, uh, Father Edward Dowling wrote an article called Grapevine, and it was the 21st anniversary, 25th anniversary of AA, and he spoke of his own gluttony, uh, needing to stay away from starch and salt and sugar, and this led to uh, the low-carbohydrate food plan that became known forever as the gray sheet. And for those who don't know, I just want to give you a little background on the gray sheet because I found this really interesting stuff. The main focus of almost all 12-step groups with food plan requirements is what was seen as the core of the gray sheet, elimination of sugar and flour from their members' diet. It, it, the belief is that in trying to equate food programs with programs such as NA and AA, there needed to be some solid line from which one could be determined sober or not. It was also felt that these specific foods led their members to phenomenon of craving spoken about in the big book, which is the kind of Bible of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, the gray sheet was published and provided scientific proof that low-carb diets had been shown to cause few, fewer cravings in people. Simple carbohydrates have been found to increase serotonin levels, which in turn leads to feeling better and fully, but only temporarily. The downside is that the increase in blood sugar levels is followed by a drop later in those levels, which can cause um, cravings again. And so the cycle is often repeated. So if anyone's interested in looking into that, he discusses more of the different programs. But this really went along well with um, what Julia Ross was talking about in this mood and carb addiction video. And basically... Um, she discusses a malnourished brain compared to a well-nourished brain. She goes on to talk about how anxiety is tripled. We have an epidemic of depression. We have an epidemic of addicts, stress, and that diet is the real problem. You know, starting in World War II, the change from the traditional American diet, lots of good fat was eliminated and things like margarine was introduced. Um, the depressed brain is nervous anxious and craving and then she goes on to say the optimistic brain is calm satisfied and stocked with amino acids and other nutrients she talks about the four neurotransmitters that affect food craving and this is where her she was really fascinated by the addiction issues um, basically um, if you can regulate your brain chemistry you can leave the sugar behind and um, in the beginning of the 
the movie or excuse me the um the YouTube video you know she talks about how they they have good nutrition changes lead to better moods and then 10 weeks it took to fully recover from or withdraw from bad mood junk foods food cravings um and debilitating moods and so i just want to give a brief overview of the four um neurotransmitters that affect uh food cravings, and it was mentioned already um, by Gabby and Doug, but serotonin, GABA, um, catecholamines, and endorphins. And so, you know, having a lack of those can really affect your mood. Another thing that um, she mentioned in her Food Mood Connection video was that they um, worked with a Dr. Blum and... um, he was a neuroscientist, I do believe, and uh, they studied alcoholics and drug addicts, and their re- research explained why anxiety, depression, and insomnia were part of what they called a reward deficiency syndrome. And so they say that you can override bad mood genes by supplementing amino acids radically these amino acids radically improved moods, and those who took none had larger and longer relapse rates. Aminos only need to to be taken for three to ten months to see changes. And so they call their approach nutritional therapy with psychotherapy. And so just so uh, a little bit of overview, and I'm sure um, Doug and Gabby can add to this as well, but um, if you have uh, high serotonin levels, you're positive, confident, flexible, and easygoing. If you have low serotonin levels, you're negative, obsessive, worrying, and sleepless. And then catecholamine, high catecholamine is your energized, upbeat, and alert. And low catecholamine, you crash, you have flat, lethargic feelings of funk. Um, Another one was GABA. If you have high GABA, you're relaxed and stress-free. And if you have low GABA, you're wired, stressed, and overwhelmed. And then finally, endorphins, which Gabby mentioned a little bit, you have cozy feelings, comfort, euphoria. And low endorphins are crying, oversensitive to physical pain and emotional pain. And so she she asks the question, why are your mood engines running on empty? And then goes through and tries to give advice and, and does give advice and supplementation on how to deal with these high and low issues with um, these four neurotransmitters. So I really recommend it. Again, Julia Ross, uh, Mood and Carb Addiction, and that was in 2014 uh, at the Silicon Valley Health Institute. And then the other one was Food Mood Connection. So that's just a little bit. And you guys might want to add more on that. Um, it just was really fascinating stuff. I'm sure we've all known somebody who's had a food addiction, uh, someone close to us, and we really want to help. And these, this information can be very beneficial, especially if people don't have the time to read and whatnot. And in, in my own experience, um, 
I wish that I would have had this information when raising teenage daughters who were experiencing <laughs> all of these kind of symptoms, you know, um, and I just, you know, didn't really know exactly how to go about it. And I will say the food addiction issue is real. I've seen it in my own children that, um, you know, they, they are addicted to soda or fast food and you try and help and give advice. And it's like nothing is is really helping them, and and they're really they are suffering. Well, thanks, Erica, for covering that. I mean, we can. Uh, <clears throat> I think we can all relate to that in some way or another, especially in the process of changing our diets. You know, I don't know that I personally that I can say that I ever suffered from a full blown food addiction, but I definitely remember. Um, what you might call the Jones, you know, for a pizza or for a giant sandwich. Uh, and um, I do think I was I was addicted for a period of time to a Diet Pepsi uh, and, uh, you know, the aspartame that was in there and just having that all day, every day. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's hard to break out of, uh, especially if it makes you feel a certain way and then when you don't, you feel bad. Um, somebody needs the, uh, the willpower and the motivation to get through something like that, but I mean, to anybody who's listening who might be struggling with something like this, I think we can all attest to the fact that once you get onto a high-fat diet, um, the differences are really stark, uh, and it really comes out in your mood, in your day-to-day, and how you deal with stress and things like that. You feel a lot better. Um, You know, I I used to wake up with really heavy anxiety in the morning, and, um, you know, of course it's not completely gone, but it it certainly is like a good 80% less than it used to be. Uh, when I was just kind of recklessly eating whatever I wanted. Um, so uh, along those lines, uh, you know, things that we can do to help, you know, aside from uh, the diet um, are, are supplements. There's a lot of supplements that are beneficial with this. Um, and Doug wanted to cover that uh, for a little bit and just talk about some of the things that work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, this list is by no means extensive. But it's just kind of okay. the things that uh, that I that I kind of uh, you know came up with off the top of my head. I consulted a bit of uh, Nora Gaudis's book, uh, Primal Body, Primal Mind, as well, uh, just to look into some of this. So, like we were discussing before, I mean, addressing any kind of deficiency um, is going to be a, a, a huge component in uh, in regulating mood. Um, so, some of these are things that you can try just to see if they help. Um, Omega three supplementation, I think, is very important. Um, I think it's one of those things that probably everybody could be doing. Um, you know, do some some good quality fish oil. Um, betaine HCL, which is a, a form of hydrochloric acid. I think um, a lot of times one of the big problems with this is not necessarily that the diet is lacking. Um, well, in most cases it is that the diet is lacking, but, you know, if, if somebody has converted themselves onto a, a better diet, um, and is, is eating all the right things but still seems to be suffering, what might be going on is that they're actually just not uh, digesting and assimilating things properly. So taking a hydrochloric acid supplement can be very helpful because if you're not producing enough stomach acid, then for one thing, you're not breaking down your proteins properly and therefore not assimilating all those amino acids you need for um, all, all these things we've been talking about for uh, the different neurotransmitters. Um, but you're also not going to be uh, chelating the different minerals that you're getting from your diet. Um, so your mineral uh, digestion is going to be uh, suffering as well. 
so yeah, uh, supplementing with uh, with hydrochloric acid supplements is is pretty key. Um, especially when first starting the diet, um, you know, low acid levels are pretty epidemic. Um, as I was mentioning, magnesium, very important thing to be supplementing. Um, a couple of different forms can be very helpful. I think the best form that's out there right now, the research seems to be pointing to magnesium glycinate, which is also referred to as magnesium biglycinate or bisglycinate. Um, it's, uh, the, the particle size is very small in that one and therefore it is very well absorbed. Uh, and it also doesn't tend to lead to um, uh, digestive um, upset. So uh, if you take too much magnesium, you tend to get diarrhea. Um, this one, uh, the magnesium glycinate, tends to not do that quite so easily as other forms like uh, magnesium oxide or magnesium citrate. Um, also, ionic magnesium is very good as well. That's magnesium that basically isn't bound to anything. You're just taking it in the pure magnesium form. It's usually in a liquid form. Uh, transdermal magnesium can be helpful as well. So whether that be taking uh, Epsom salt baths or um, doing spray-on uh, transdermal magnesium, uh, that can be very helpful. Uh, magnesium malate can be very good as well, especially if someone is suffering from any kind of fibromyalgia symptoms um, because the malate uh, that the magnesium is bound to has been found to be malic acid is very helpful for fibromyalgia symptoms. Um, Iodine deficiency, that's another thing that should probably be addressed. Um, the, the, the symptoms for iodine deficiency are very similar to those of uh, magnesium deficiency, uh, things like brain fog, ADHD, memory problems. Um, the modern diet, uh, especially one that contains processed foods, uh, will often lead to an iodine deficiency. Um, and it's not just because the diet doesn't contain enough iodine, but also because uh, modern diet tends to deplete iodine. Um, so iodine sources, you can get it from things like kelp and seafoods, but um, uh, you, you might want to just do like a concentrated iodine supplement as well. Um, B vitamins, uh, very important for en cellular energy processes, uh, for adrenal health, especially B5 and B6. Um, and uh, B12 is very important for the nervous system, uh, nervous system uh, function. Uh, vegans and vegetarians tend to be quite depleted in B12 because there is no vegetable source for it, despite what uh, some supplements will tell you. Um, but uh, even, even people who are, are eating a lot of animal products might also be uh, deficient in B12, and that goes back to the whole um, hydrochloric acid problem. Uh, if you're not producing enough hydrochloric acid, you're not going to be uh, digesting your B12 properly. Um, there are sublingual B12 supplements out there. Uh, I would recommend getting one that's in the methylcobalamin form. Um, and try and get a sublingual one that doesn't have sugar in it. A lot of them add sugar just because, you know, if you're putting uh, anything to dissolve in your mouth, uh, apparently it has to taste like candy. So try and find one that doesn't have sugar. They are out there. Um, it's also good to try and get the active forms of your B vitamins. If you're getting a B complex, try and fi find one that has the P5P version of uh, B6, uh, the methylcobalamin version of B12, as I mentioned, and methylfolate. Um, the, the methyl forms are, are important because they uh, have methyl donors. Um, I'm not going to get into that because it gets quite complicated. Um, but uh, methyl donors can be quite helpful for uh, things like memory um, and also mood. Um, so there are other methyl donors out there not related to B vitamins, actually, like SAMe, uh, TMG, choline, betaine, um, as well as vitamin B6 and folic acid. Um, there's also fat-soluble form of vitamin B1 called benthothiamine, um, 
and that actually helps to decrease glycation. So you remember before I was talking about how um, when anybody's eating a, a high-carb diet, they end up with this kind of caramelized layer on their proteins that makes them ineffective. Well, uh, benfothiamine actually um, decreases this uh, glycation. Um, so if you're transitioning from a high-carb diet, um, this will uh, help to buffer some of the negative effects that uh, eating uh, high carbs had on you um, and might help your transition go a little bit more smoothly, as well as improving your mood. Because, you know, if you get rid of that glycation that's, uh, you know, all over the uh, neurotransmitters or the, um, the receptors, um, then you're, you're going to be just more efficient at, uh, at, at having those neurotransmitters work. Um, L-carnosine um, is an amino acid, and that is also very good for helping to protect against the glycating of uh, brain tissue. Um, L-carnosine is found uh, exclusively in meat products. Um, you can't find it in a vegetarian diet, um, so, uh, but supplementing with it could be quite helpful as well. Um, phosphatidylserine is another one. It's sometimes referred to just as PS. Um, it's a fatty substance that uh, is uh, needed for the myelin sheath which is the coating that coats neurons, um, and it helps with uh, signal transmission. Um, it's actually even been found to help with mild uh, brain degeneration. Uh, it also helps by reducing uh, cortisol levels, uh, cortisol being the stress hormone. Um, and, you know, we've talked before about how cortisol, chronically raised cortisol levels can be uh, quite damaging um, and obviously doesn't have a very good effect on your mood. Um, so phosphatidylserine uh, also has been found to improve memory, focus, and concentration. Um, there's a couple of supplements called alpha-GPC um, and DMAE, and I'm not going to say what those things stand for because they are a huge mouthful, um, but they are both precursors to acetylcholine, uh, which is uh, an important memory and cognitive uh, neurotransmitter. Uh, it helps with a wide variety of cognitive problems, um, as well as mood and sleep. Another one called heparzine A also uh, helps to increase acetylcholine in the brain, uh, has even been found to be effective against Alzheimer's. Um, amino acid called L-tyrosine, and I know Gabby was talking about that a little bit before. It's a, an important precursor to both norepinephrine and dopamine. Um, it's a good idea, idea to supplement B6 with that one as well because the B6 is important for uh, conversions that uh, L-tyrosine has to go through. Go through. Um, DLPA, uh, which stands for D-L-phenylalanine, uh, that's another uh, amino acid, uh, and it's a precursor to L-tyrosine, norepinephrine, and dopamine. Uh, the D form... So uh, D-L-phenylalanine is both the D form and the L form of phenylalanine, so it's like kind of... Uh, different structures of the same amino acid. Uh, the D form is actually particularly useful when there's any kind of pain um, or addictive and pleasure-seeking uh, behaviors. Um, that the, the D form can be quite helpful for that. Um, there's an inhibitory and calming neurotransmitter called GABA, which again, uh, Gabby just uh, covered a little bit, um, and actually Erica did too. Uh, this one's really good when there's any kind of anxiety, uh, excuse me, anxiety uh, or racing thoughts, uh, physical tensions. Uh, the one thing about GABA, though, is that it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. Um, and actually, if you take GABA and it, you do find that it's helpful, that might actually be pointing to a larger problem that is a leaky blood-brain barrier, that things are getting across the blood-brain barrier that aren't supposed to be. Um, that is a whole other issue in and of itself. Um, so I won't go into it here, but um, usually if, if somebody is correcting their uh, a problem with leaky gut, they're also correcting a problem with a leaky blood-brain barrier. Um, 
for that reason, though, um, theanine may be better a better choice. Theanine is another amino acid. Um, it does cross the uh, blood-brain barrier, um, and uh, it, what it does is increase GABA. Um, so it's, again, good for anxiety, depression, uh, anytime it's paired with mind racing or physical tension. Um, it also has a positive effect on serotonin and uh, dopamine and has a neuroprotective effect. A uh, natural source of theanine is actually uh, green tea. And that's the reason that green tea, which has all this caffeine, uh, some people, a lot of people can take it right before bed because the theanine actually uh, counteracts the, uh, the caffeine. Um, L-tryptophan or 5-HTP. Now, somebody asked in the chat room what the difference is between those two and when you would want to use one rather than the other. So tryptophan is, a, is an amino acid as well. It's an essential amino acid. Um, but there is a form of it called 5-HTP, and it's basically just a form that's further along on the biochemical pathway um, of conversion. Um, so just quickly, it, it, uh, it's helpful in hyperactivity in children. Uh, and as a precursor to both serotonin and melatonin. Um, generally, it's just two different forms, and it doesn't really matter which one you take, except if sleep is an issue. Um, if you're having trouble sleeping, then you probably want to go with the L-tryptophan instead of the 5-HTP, because 5-HTP can increase cortisol. Um, so you do want to, to watch out a little bit for that. Um, if you are going to be taking it close to bedtime, it's probably better to go with the L-tryptophan instead of 5-HTP. Um, but you don't really want to uh, supplement both of them. You want to just do one or the other. Um, important to note that sugar consumption can actually disrupt the therapeutic effect of 5-HTP uh, or tryptophan. Um, and also the absorption of these, um, they tend to, of all the amino acids, they tend to uh, get kind of left in the lurch a little bit. They're... Um, the least well um, absorbed, like the, all the amino acids compete for, um, for uptake, or some of the amino acids do. Um, and L-tryptophan tends not to be absorbed as well, so take it on an empty stomach. Um, it's also helpful for anxiety and depression symptoms, but if you are on antidepressants, don't take it. Um, there can be interactions there. Uh, and finally, vitamin D. Uh, vitamin D is uh, found to be quite helpful for uh, seasonal affective disorder, or SAD. Um, so people tend to up their um, their consumption of it in the in the winter time when they're not getting as much sunlight because vitamin D, as you know, is produced when uh, when our skin is exposed to sunlight. Um, and Gabby mentioned some uh, some dosages there. She said 4,000 to 8,000. That's definitely uh, in a good range. The Vitamin D Council actually recommends 10,000 in the in the winter time. Um, the thing is, like I know here in Canada, you can't actually buy it any higher than 1,000 um, because Health Canada is I I don't know they're silly about these sorts of things. I don't I don't really know what their concern is because it is very difficult to to overdose on vitamin D, but um, it's it's hard to find in in higher dosages. So um, yeah, you might end up having to take kind of a handful of of pills, unfortunately, if you're trying to get to up to those uh, 8,000 10,000 uh, IU levels. Um, and that that's what I've got here. I have a quick question oh. for Doug and Gabby. So mm -hmm. um, in the mood and carb addiction video, Julia Ross talked about five H I A A. And um, she was saying that it was um, 
would help. It's she had this funny little thing about how she loves crack addicts because <laughs> she found that she could get people off of crack cocaine by using this supplement. I don't know if you guys have any experience with that. Um, she just said that uh, it's a breakdown product of serotonin and a mood affecting chemical and um, helps with the violence and suicidal tendencies. And she did go on to say that Prozac um, or antidepressants drugs do cause a sudden drop in this 5-HIAA. So I don't know if you folks know much about that, but I just wanted to mention that. Uh, well, yes. no. I Oh, you know it, Gabby? Because I, I don't know it. Well, um, when I read her book, she did cover that part as well. I, I guess that it's the same material that she covered in the videos. But just because of the chemical pathways are disrupted in certain people that way, that format works better for them. That's basically, yeah. But I don't have any clinical experience, you know, with that supplement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and and like you you were both saying that um, she, in this video she talks about how this is not something that people need to be on for the rest of their lives. Like it can be four to six months if these are taken properly, um, vitamin supplementation, and then for heavy addicts like uh, crack cocaine and heroin that it may take up to a year, but they've seen phenomenal results. So I found that very interesting. Cool. Uh, Doug, I had a quick question for you as well about <clears throat> the precursors. Um, mm -hmm. You had mentioned that, for instance, GABA doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. And so I guess my question is, is it is it better in general to take a precursor for a neurotransmitter than it is to take that supplement itself, like, uh, you know, to take as opposed to taking GABA, is that kind of a, a good across-the-board thing to find out what the precursors are and take those, uh, like with melatonin as well? Not necessarily, no, um, because, I mean, okay. if you're having an issue with something, you might actually be having trouble with the conversion, not actually um, a problem with the, uh, with, with the thing itself. So it, it's, there's no hard and fast rule for it. Um, in the case with GABA, because it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier, it, it might be, it, you know, it generally is a better idea to, to take the theanine because it does cross the blood-brain barrier. But um, every situation is different. So, um, you know, there are certain situations where, yeah, you would want to take a precursor instead. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, there's no hard and fast rule, unfortunately. Sure. So the precursor essentially relies on the body's ability to make that transition. It's not like yeah. you automatically get converted. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, it's like, it's the similar thing with the omega-3s I was talking about before, right? Like, you know, some people are taking ALA, which is the short chain omega-3 fat that you find in things like flax oil. Um, in that situation, you don't want to be taking the precursor because we don't tend to convert um, it to the longer chain EPA and DHA. Um, so in that case, you definitely want to go more for the end product than, than, the, uh, than the precursor. We, um, <clears throat> Gabby, we have in our, our discussion here uh, that you wanted to follow up a little bit on um, uh, supplements specifically for the four syndromes that you had, had mentioned earlier. And I know we might have a little bit of redundancy here since Doug covered that really well, but do you want to take a few minutes just to talk about 
what things uh, people can specifically look for for, say, thyroid issues, for adrenal issues, things like that? Yeah, I'll cover that briefly, like, I'll go ready to do an excellent job. And I can only, you know, synthesize the experience, especially our core members, members of the Cachetia Forum. And um, just to remind people that, you know, most members already did dietary changes when they tried this supplement. And that most people um, who are already like one year, two years on the diet, they don't need these supplements. Maybe at the beginning they needed more often. Eventually it was not longer necessary. And uh, usually when you know that a supplement is no longer necessary, it gives you the symptoms they're supposedly to cure in quotes. That's a clear indication that you don't need the supplement. And also, you know, you feel like you compare well with the diet alone. But in synthesis, um, for the first problem, which was serotonin problems, yes, what Duke mentioned, which was a 5-HTP and tryptophan. In the, in the forum experience, um, 5-HTP did work better, and typically 300 milligrams per day were needed. You know, you start with the lowest dose, uh, which is 50 milligrams twice per day, and you build up every two days until you reach 300 milligrams more or less. Yes, for other people, tryptophan works better, and sometimes melatonin is needed to achieve a good night's sleep. Um, St. John's word is also a serotonin enhancer, and that is 300 milligrams three times per day. Just a reminder that serotonin supplements, uh, the absolute contraindication for them is if you are on antidepressants called MAO inhibitors. Mayo inhibitors. These are rarely used today. It's just for specific types of depression. And uh, other antidepressants, there is relative contraindication, not absolute contraindication. So these, as far as uh, serotonin problems goes, 5-HTP and tryptophan, you know, 5-HTP seems to work better for most people. Then uh, for the second problem, which is thyroid problems and dopamine, catecholamines, such as adrenaline and noradrenaline, the supplement, uh, the most favored one in general experience is L-tyrosine, 500 milligrams three times per day. If one capsule of 500 milligrams is not enough. You have to remember not to take these supplements uh, no longer late, um, not later than mid-afternoon because it can energize you, you know. You want to wind down after mid-afternoon to have a good night's sleep. And um, for those who L-tyrosine doesn't do the trick, L-selenalanine, 500 milligrams, one to four capsules between meals, no longer than 3 p.m., does seem to work. And uh, for those who have adrenal issues, adrenal problems, well, there are several substances that work here. For, for example, vitamin D, it works very well. And so you can do that if you don't have iron overload because vitamin D increases the absorption of, of iron. Another protocol is with low-dose hydrocortisone, physiological doses of hydrocortisone, which is our natural cortisol. That can be tried 2.5 milligrams first thing in the morning, up to 10 milligrams throughout the day, no longer than, no, not after 3 p.m. 
that does that is a very good protocol, especially if you have lots of food sensitivities and are going through a lot of stress. Another trick is to is to use progesterone cream or gel applied in the inner lining of the vagina rectum according to instructions. And uh, that's that supports the adrenal glands, you know, and, and all the precursor and all the hormones that are derived from progesterone. Um, GABA, which was mentioned earlier, is it up muscle tension. Um, the suggested dose is 100 milligrams three times per day, but often more is necessary, you know, 500 milligrams. And in general, any, any adrenal support, uh, herbal remedies sold as Adrenal optimizers, adrenal support, they often help as well. And for the last group, which was endorphin supplements or endorphin for endorphin problems, yes, or the mentioned the DL phenylalanine, uh, especially if you're dealing with too much physical pain or emotional pain, it is a potent endorphin booster. And um, and in the book and in general, it's suggested for you know more or less the temporary use, but chronic use. In the foreign research, in our foreign research, um, just a few days seem to be enough. You know, if you, can, if you take it chronically, you can have like a rebound effect or, you know, opposite symptoms that you want to avoid. Mm. But if you take it for a few days, say you're dealing with a lot of emotional pain. You know, you can take, um, you know, a little bit, like 500 milligrams first thing in the morning, it can be taken up to three times per day, you know, not after 3 p.m. And that for one, two, three days, that seems to do the trick. And, you know, and you can keep going. And then the amino acids that you mentioned, you know, in the mood cure, a specific blend is um, recommended, which contains leucine, methionine, tryptophan, um, phenylalanine, valine, isoleucine, and it's basically a blend that can be taken twice per day, not after 3 p.m. again. And it's 800 milligrams. Um, so, yes, that's basically to synthesize, uh, to wrap up, you know, the supplements suggested for each group. And, uh, yes, it is definitely worth having the Moodshare book as a reference because she lists doses, you know, how much you can increment your dose or how little you need, when to stop the supplements, which is basically when you have opposite symptoms you want to treat. And it's a really good research to have in your library, you know. And uh, the other book I want to mention, you know, that was recommended in the forum is How to Get Off Psychiatric Drugs Safely by James Harper. You know, people who have specific psychiatric drugs, these um, healthcare providers used to go through each drug specifically and which supplements you take. So I think that's a good idea to check out if you're dealing with that specific problem. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, Gabby. Yeah, I mean, it's um, you know, it's it's always good to uh, to do your research um, every time, and that's why we encourage people to uh, to look things up on their own. And um, I can say from my own personal experience that it's not generally a good idea to just jump into something, even with supplements, um, you know, and just start taking them like, oh, this will be good for me. Oh, that'll be good for me. Like, it's very important to know what you're trying to treat. Um, do the research. Get the books if you can. Um, if not, do thorough research online 
and really find out what, you know, what your dosages should be and at what times of the day and that kind of thing. Um, otherwise, <clears throat> the results can really kind of throw you for a loop. Um, so as we've been mentioning this book, The Mood Cure, we just encourage everybody to check that out. Uh, I believe it's available on Amazon um, by Julia Ross. So um, let's, uh, let's go to Zoya uh, for the pet health segment here for a little bit. Um, the topic this week is animal abuse on dairy farms, and we're going to get educated on that. So we will be back after this segment. Uh, with the recipe for today, which is going to be tapas, um, which some of you may or may not be familiar with, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. But here's Zora. Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today I would like to talk about a very painful but also very important topic. I want to talk about treatment of farm animals. I had this idea of sharing about the abuse that goes on in dairy complexes and other for quite some time now, but a couple of days ago saw a petition that prompted me to talk about it now. The petition goes as following. Please sign and share this petition worldwide in an effort to bring to light the fact that handlers and workers at the Birnam Wood dairy farm have been videotaped abusing and harming the cows. Merciful Animals placed the undercover cameras in an attempt to further investigate any cruelty and abuse of these poor animals. Owners and family members of this family-owned dairy farm in Birnam Wood, uh, Wisconsin, appeared to be appalled and shocked when they were presented with a video coverage showing their staff kicking and punching cows, spraying them in the face with high-pressure water hoses, and cutting off cows' tails with pruning shears. No one contested the events shown on the video coverage of the Andrews Dairy Farm taped by an animal rights group known as Mercy for Animals. The proprietors vow that they intended to curb such abuse from ever occurring. The owner of the farm, Mr. Andrews, stated that we were shocked to see some of our employees not following appropriate animal handling practices on a farm. No one in our family was aware of such conduct occurring on a farm. After that, creators of the petition continued to share more details. Well, what can I say about that? First of all, that it isn't surprising and nothing new, even if I thought that in countries like U.S., their rather serious animal protection laws would provide some sort of protection against such appalling cases of animal abuse. On the other hand, why wouldn't such things occur in the country where many condone clearly illegal orders of the president, such as drone attacks on civilian targets? The heights of hypocrisy are particularly vivid when Americans blindly buy into an anti-Russian propaganda instead of looking at what is being done in their name in the Middle East, for example. But we digress. The bottom line is, as part of my studies, I have no choice but to see how many farm animals are being treated here. I see the cost of people enjoying dairy products, and I naively thought that, I was, that it was a local problem due to lack of funds and other similar problems. But clearly, uh, this is the problem of dairy farms everywhere, not to mention pig farms and other. So let me try and summarize the terror of the situation many farm animals find themselves in, and how we, veterinarians, supposedly the ones with the most noble profession, help to perpetuate the problem. You see, physical abuse is only a tip of an iceberg. 
since entire industry is a crime against nature. Let's take a dairy cow as an example. To produce milk for human consumption, a dairy cow must keep giving birth to cows, usually each year. Cows are taken from their mothers within 20-24 hours of birth. If nature was allowed to take its course, cows would suckle from their mother for several months, even up to a year. Mother cows, like most mammals, have a strong maternal bond. One study found that this bond was formed in as little as five minutes. When cows are removed, mother cows will frantically look for their offspring that they will never see again. Separated cows appear frightened and confused. Regardless of how this situation is handled, this separation causes enormous stress for both the cow and cow. New mothers are returned to the milking herd to maximize profits. The milk that nature is destined for the calf is then processed for human consumption. The natural lifespan of a cow is up to 20 years, but, but few commercial dairy cows live beyond the age of 7 years, and many younger animals go to slaughter. Selective breeding and more recently genetic manipulation has resulted in the selection and production of cows who produce enormous amounts of milk. The modern dairy cow can produce about 35-50 liters of milk per day, about 10 times more milk than her calf would need. Producing, half, uh, producing large quantities of milk puts a significant metabolic strain on the animal. The great weight of the uterus often causes painful stretching and or tearing of ligaments and frequently causes food problems such as laminitis. These food problems can be associated with significant pain. Dairy cattle is also susceptible to infections of the teeth and udder uh, mastitis, which can be very painful. The milking machine itself may render the cow more susceptible to infection. The front teeth may be subjected to vacuum pulsing for up to two minutes after the quarter has been emptied and while the hind teeth are still yielding. This is believed to be painful for the cow and may also weaken tissue. The nature of the vacuum milking process is known to increase the possibility of infection. Now let's talk about induced calving. Uh, this is a herd management practice uh, that is, is still being practiced on uh, many farms and it is used to induce the cows in the herd to calf in a short period of time, regardless of when they were mated and conceived. It requires the injection of corticosteroids by a veterinarian to prematurely trigger the birth of the calf and thereby allowing the cow to re-enter the milking herd at an earlier time. The welfare of the mother cow is often compromised, particularly if greater than three weeks of expected gestation, as the procedure increases the risk of mastitis, metabolic diseases, retained membranes, and infection. The welfare of the prematurely born calf is also of concern as a calf may be weak, requiring special care and attention. Sometimes cows that can't get pregnant are also being treated with hormones, which only further jeopardizes the health. As for the docking or cutting off uh, cow's tails, the petition cites this practice as part of the abuse, but apparently many farms do it purposefully and routinely to all their cows. Surgical amputation or using elastic rings of, of the cow tail is quite common. Sometimes only a small part of the tail is being left intact. It is done because dairy farmers don't like to be swift uh, swished 
in the face with a dirty tail uh, whilst in the milking shed, and a mistaken belief that dirty tails contribute to higher bacterial contamination and perhaps higher level of mastitis. Without a tail, uh, the cows are inevitably irritated by flies that they are unable to dislodge. The amputation causes immediate pain, and the nerve damage to the stump may result in chronic pain. Sometimes they cut the tail so it won't be injured by the manual collecting mechanism when the cow is lying down. Also, dairy breeds of cattle will usually grow horns and uh, in the jolting involved during the herding process for twice a day milking, they may injure other cows. Therefore, a heifer female cows being raised to enter the milking herd will usually undergo disbudding a procedure at an early age, less than six months of age. This is usually done by applying heat uh, cauterization to horn buds or by using a knife or scoop tool to remove all the horn uh, growth tissues in the horn bud. Currently, this painful procedure is, in many places, is still being done without analgesia or sedation. Uh, if dairy cows are not being disbudded, older dairy cattle may be dehorned, a painful and distressing procedure that also carries a high risk of infection and even uh, blowfly infestation in some regions. There are many other gruesome details, but you get the idea. Now, veterinarians have a very important role in all of this. On one hand, it may appear that we do a good and noble job at keeping animals in their best condition that they may be uh, in such circumstances. After all, we still need their milk, right? Well, unfortunately, it is very wrong. Because contrary to the fact that humans indeed require meat in order to maintain optimal health, there is no health justification for drinking cow milk. The simple fact is that the only creature that is supposed to drink cow's milk is her baby, a cow-cow. Others are simply using her and torturing her in the process. If that isn't a crime against nature, I don't know what is. During my studies, I have to learn countless diseases and disorders in cows that we need to treat and most of them are due to improper upkeep and improper diet. Meaning, most of the diseases wouldn't even happen if the cow would be allowed to live her life naturally as she is supposed to. Even beef cattle is in a far better condition because they are allowed to keep their babies and no one takes the milk. Because otherwise they wouldn't gain as much weight as they would. But most of the dairy cows live in concentration camps and experience the same stress and horrors. I understand that there are probably private and small dairy farms that do treat the animals with respect but they are very few in comparison to what is going on in dairy complexes all around the world. So to summarize, the story that is being shared in the petition that I talked about in the beginning of this segment is indeed horrible, but really not particularly extraordinary. Not beating the crap out of cows doesn't mean that they are being treated well and as they should. Some cows in dairy complexes never see the sun or never step on the green grass. And while the, uh, vegetarian fanatics like PETA call us meat-eaters uh, criminals, the truth, is, the truth is that, as I said before, meat cows often are being treated far better than dairy cows, but surely still experience abuse. But this is a topic for another conversation. Well, this is it for this segment. Have a nice day, and goodbye.
right. Thank you, Zoya. Well, that was very informative. I mean, <clears throat> I think a, a lot of people are aware, uh, maybe not as many as should be, but uh, in this day and age that uh, these large farms really do uh, mistreat their animals. Certainly not 100% of them, but it does go on. Um, <clears throat> that it needs to be, uh, you know, to be made public and that people need to be aware of this. Um, you know, I, I guess there is a certain segment of the population that just doesn't care. Um, but if you have a, you know, an, an ounce of uh, conscience about where your food comes from and uh, you think about, you know, these, these animals are providing sustenance uh, for us uh, that they should be treated properly. Um, so it's a, it's a sad situation. I think we could all do our part in, in kind of spreading awareness about that. Um, <clears throat> well, uh, today for our recipe, it's not so much a, a straight, you know, one half cup of this, one teaspoon of that recipe, but uh, I wanted to talk about tapas, which uh, it, when we talked before the show, um, uh, uh, Tiffany, who couldn't be with us today, but had, had made the comment that aren't these essentially hors d'oeuvres? And yes, they are. Uh, tapas are essentially Spanish hors d'oeuvres or appetizers. Um, but uh, it, it, in talking, what made me think about this was that we were talking about the mood here today, and sometimes just putting your creative energy into something uh, can help, can help your mood. Um, and I know that uh, in, in my own experience, <clears throat> when I started switching over my diet, I had this certain portion of time where it was like, oh, man, I'm just going to be eating, like, hamburger and butter for the rest of my life, which is not <laughs> such a bad combination. But uh, it can also be really fun to make a creative dish that you then eat and take your time with it um, it, it's very satisfying, and uh, this is not to say that everybody should become a foodie and, you know, like, go totally crazy with it all the time, but I think that there's definitely something to be said for making a well-crafted, visually appealing meal that is also really tasty. So, um, tapas, uh, just reading from Wikipedia here, it's a, a wide variety of appetizers or snacks in Spanish cuisine, maybe cold or hot. Uh, in select bars in Spain, tapas have evolved into an entire and sometimes sophisticated cuisine. Uh, in Spain, patrons of tapas can order many different kinds of tapas and combine them to make a full meal. In some Central American countries, such snacks are known as bocas. Uh, in Mexico, similar dishes are called botanas. Uh, the serving of tapas is designed to encourage conversation because people are not so focused on eating an entire meal that's set before them. Also, in some countries, it's customary for diners to stand and move about while they're eating the tapas. So you can see how it's essentially an order, but it, it is something you can have a lot of fun with. Um, traditionally, a tapas uh, is a, uh, a layer of uh, bread um, and then some kind of meat and cheese or spice or, like, herb on top of that. Now, we've talked a lot about the low-carb diet, so for the bread here, you can get creative. Uh, last week, we did the cashew butter bread, uh, which I made a couple times this week, and it was very good. Um, just to revisit that really quickly, so if, if anybody doesn't want to go back and try to find that <clears throat> in last week's show, the, uh, the recipe is very small, so I'll just go over that real quick. Uh, one cup cashew butter, five large eggs, one tablespoon apple cider vinegar, uh, one teaspoon of sweetener like stevia or uh, xylitol, three-fourths teaspoon of baking soda, and one-fourth teaspoon of sea salt. Uh, you mix the cashew butter and the eggs, uh, pulse them together. Then you mix in the vinegar, 
then you put in the uh, the sweetener and the baking soda and the salt and mix that in. You end up with kind of a batter. Now, if you're going to make uh, tapas, uh, first of all, you bake this at uh, 350 for 45 minutes and then let, let it cool for a while. I found that cooling for about an hour, even a little bit less, was fine. Um, and I did make this in a bread pan, so it came out like traditional kind of small bread loaf. But you could take like a cookie sheet and spread it out and make a thinner version of this, uh, in which case then you could take your knife and cut that up into very small segments um, to use as the base for your tapas. And I like this idea because uh, this also results in ultimately less carb content per serving. Um, we figured out that roughly each slice of this bread has like maybe seven or eight grams of carbs. Um, so you can have a few and you're not going to hurt even if you're on uh, on, on a keto diet, you know, you can, if you're staying below 25 grams of carbs a day, you can still uh, stay within that and have one or two slices of, of this. Um, with the tapas, you might be even able to have more. I imagine it would go down to like two to three grams of carbs per, per chunk if you're going to cut them into like, say, three by one inch pieces. Um, so I'd encourage people to play around with that. Make like a big sheet of the bread on a cookie sheet. And then uh, take some kind of a meat, whether you're going to do like sliced uh, beef or chicken or uh, bacon and mix those together um, and then lay it out uh, kind of nicely on the little chunk of bread. Uh, and then sometimes what I like to do with this is make a chimichurri, which I think that we talked about in the past, uh, which is basically mm -hmm. a mixture of uh, cilantro, parsley and garlic and then salt and pepper. And you kind of cook those on a very low temperature until they mix together and kind of wilt the greens a little bit so you get it with kind of a kind of a green paste that's really really flavorful so um uh, layering the say the cashew bread chunk with like some chicken with a little slice of bacon and then some of the chimichurri on top of that uh, could be a very good combination um you could also do uh fish like if you want to do trout or um salmon or something like that. I know some people avoid salmon, um, but some people don't, so that's an option. Um, and then uh, with the fish, you could make like uh, basically whipped uh, coconut cream and say mix in like a lemon extract with the, uh, with the coconut cream and use that as like a faux sour cream topping. <clears throat> so, um, and then, you know, get creative with the top. Uh, take, you know, a little bit of like uh, crushed almonds or a little bit of parsley or something and kind of sprinkle that or place that on the top and then, you know, dash some pepper on there uh, and just make it look nice. And so that's that was kind of essentially my point for talking about tapas, like I said, was to put some energy into your food once in a while, um, take a little bit of time uh, to make it aesthetically pleasing, kind of lay it out on a plate. And uh, this has actually worked for me in the past, I should say not from like a food addict perspective, uh, but just from, like, if I'm feeling down and I had a really long day, I might spend one or two hours in the kitchen making something that's really pleasing, and then I sit down and eat that. And it's, you know, uh, even with a, with a really healthy meal that doesn't have all of those uh, opiates and stuff in it, um, just that act uh, can be very pleasing, very calming, um, and can help you um, kind of enjoy your creative output. So that was my... Uh, that's my, my food recipe for the day. Although, like I said, not really a recipe, just more of an inspiration. Check it out um, and look up pictures too and see what, you know, what inspires you. So that, uh, that's our show for, for today. Um, we'll be back next week, uh, Monday, 
at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern, and we are still discussing what topic we're going to have for next week, so that's a surprise at this point, but we encourage you to come back and tune in at 2 p.m. to the Health Among Us show. And I'd like to say thank to, thanks to our hosts uh, for being here with me, and uh, thanks to our listeners for tuning in and for everybody in the chat room uh, for offering questions. So have a great week, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye. All right.